Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing friends at Pygmonic. On their behalf, I hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number eight with Dr. Dean Ornish. For over 20 years, Dr. Dean Ornish has been making headlines as the first doctor to prove, to prove now that heart disease can really be reversed by changing your lifestyle. You know, you mentioned James Cameron. Uh, I also read that you were President Bill Clinton's consulting physician since 1993. Is that true? One of them, yes. Wow. See, that's... That's metspiration right there. From the standpoint of uh, uh, eating meat, you know, again, what's good for the planet is also good for you, and what's bad for the planet is also bad for you. Eating a lot of meat, a number of studies have come out recently shown that red meat consumption increases total cardiac mortality, cancer mortality, and all-cause mortality. We did a study uh, we published with Craig Venter, who was the first to decode the human genome, yeah. showing that these same lifestyle changes could change your genes. You know, when, when I was in medical school, we were told the only way you could change your genes is to change your parents. The Nobel Prize in Medicine a few years ago went to Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who yep. discovered telomeres and their role. And we did a study together. We showed for the first time that we could actually lengthen telomeres. And when we published this in The Lancet, the Lancet editors sent out a press release worldwide and they called it reversing aging at a cellular level, which it really is. Because we have over 100 million bacteria and other organisms in our bodies that exist in a dynamic equilibrium with us. It's a really great metaphor when you think about it. It's like, you know, anything that brings us together is healing. You know, even the word healing comes from the root to make whole. You know, yoga comes from the Sanskrit to yoke, to unite, union. These are really old ideas. And the ability to coexist with 100 trillion cells that keep us healthy, you know, is a great metaphor for how we should be, you know, existing with the, uh, the 7 or 8 billion people on the planet as well. Dr. Ornish says that for many people, avoiding heart disease, avoiding it is as simple as making two or three changes. And so we're going to talk today about if you already have it, how to reverse it. Right. And you have proven that you can reverse it, That's right. not through medication, but through diet. According to the American Heart Association, individuals that choose to implement five healthy lifestyle habits can add more than a decade to their life expectancy. A 2018 large-scale study of more than 100,000 patients by the Harvard School of Public Health found that those who choose to eat a healthy diet rich in vegetables, exercise at least 30 minutes a day, maintain a healthy body weight, limit their alcohol use, and choose to not smoke during adulthood had an 82% lower risk of dying from cardiovascular disease, a 65% lower chance of dying from cancer, and a 74% lower risk of dying from all causes during follow-up. Stats like these were the reason that my investigations led me to our guest, Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Ornish just published a book which is called Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. I made sure to read it in its entirety before this interview. Once I finished it, I realized Dr. Ornish literally compiled 40 plus years of his life work and research into this masterpiece of a book. For those of you who haven't heard of Dr. Dean Ornish before, he's the president and founder of the Preventative Medicine Research Institute, 
So a lot of the groundbreaking research we discussed today was literally dreamed up by him and conducted by his own teams. His medical background is from Baylor School of Medicine and Harvard Medical School, and I can't begin to tell you how much value is packed into every second of this podcast. If you guys have been enjoying this content, please rate it five stars on iTunes. It would mean the world to us. Remember that you can send us a message on Instagram or tag Medspiration in your stories. If you take a screenshot of this podcast and upload it into your stories, we'll share your story and start a conversation with you. So definitely feel free to reach out, guys. Let us know that you're out there and that you're listening. And a special thank you to our sponsor today, Pygmonic. I personally use Pygmonic in my studies for step one directly off of my iPhone. Their learning system powers thousands of mnemonic videos and quizzes that have been scientifically proven to increase long-term memory retention by up to 331%. And trust me, they're not lying. There was things on the USMLEs that I would have never remembered if I didn't remember the Pygmonic. It sounds crazy, but it's kind of like Cliff Notes meets Saturday morning cartoons for higher education. They help med students NPs, PAs, PharmDs, RNs, LPNs, paramedics, and pre-med students rock their course exams, boards, and become more competent healthcare providers. Pygmonic has partnered with Medspiration to help make learning and memorizing easier than ever. So I know the CEO personally, and we got you a pretty sweet deal here. So you could check them out for free. If you sign up, you'll get instant access to a free video and quiz every day no credit card required you can use the promo code medspiration for 20 percent off any premium subscription again guys i would really recommend checking them out and trying out their resources i promise you won't be disappointed we'll have a link provided to you in the description below and without further ado let the medspiration begin dr dean ornish welcome to the medspiration podcast great to be here thanks for having me Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to be having a conversation with a man who is a revolutionary in the field of medicine and someone who's one of my biggest medspirations. Dr. Ornish, your work in directing clinical research and philosophies as a healer, they really connect to our mind-body-spirit doctrine here at Medspiration. And before we get into things, can you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell them a little bit about yourself and your background in medicine? Yeah, sure. Long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, sorry, wrong. That was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm also the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute. And for over 40 years, I've directed research showing what a powerful difference simple changes in diet and lifestyle can make, not only in helping to prevent disease, which we all know, but actually to treat and often even reverse it. And um, I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions can be. And you know, the more diseases we study and the more underlying biological mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain why these simple changes are so powerful and how quickly people can get better in ways we can measure. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. So yes. I had the honor and privilege of reading your newest book. It's called Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. And man, that thing was a goldmine for anybody who's trying to be healthy. It's based around eating well, moving more, stressing less, and loving more. Something yep. that, you know, like you said, low tech, low cost, but 
Uh, from the research, man, it seems very, very effective. My intention today is to dissect your book and to delve a little bit deeper into the beautiful science that you've helped publish and contribute to. I was just telling you, uh, people like me who are just getting into medicine, we get to stand on the shoulders of giants. So I'm, I'm very, oh, very grateful that, that you're out there and you're real and you're doing all this work for us, man. Thank you. Well, back at you. Thank you for uh, helping raise awareness because to me, awareness is always the first step in healing. And I called it undo it. You know, my one of my favorite quotes is the first quote in the book. It's from Albert Einstein that says, if you can't make it simple, you don't understand it well enough. And having been doing this work for over four decades, uh, most of my adult life, um, I wanted to reduce it down to its essence. Eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. And um, I put forth this radical unifying theory, which is that I was trained, like all doctors, to view heart disease is a very different disease than diabetes or prostate cancer or Alzheimer's or things like that. But the radical theory is that although we were trained to see these as being very different, that to me they're really the same disease manifesting and masquerading in different forms. And I say that because they share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in telomeres and the microbiome and gene expression and angiogenesis and so on. And each one of these mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And I called it undo it because my favorite key on the computer has always been the undo button. I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had something in our lives? And, and now we do. And we were able to show everything we've done, people thought was impossible. We were able to show for the first time that heart disease could actually be reversed, that instead of just slowing it down or preventing it, you could actually reverse it. And sometimes as an alternative to a stent or a bypass. In fact, the latest studies, I'm sure you know, there are over eight randomized trials that show that in, in stable patients, stents and angioplasties really don't work very well. They don't prolong life. They don't prevent heart attacks. They don't even reduce angina. And yet we've found that we can, most patients show a 90% reduction. Of the, I should say over 90% of the patients show uh, significant reductions in the frequency of chest pain or angina. Their arteries the blood flow to their heart improves by fourfold, and the blockages become continually less and less clogged in the arteries that feed their heart instead of more and more clogged. And, you know, I think the biggest obstacle that most people face, when, when at least that I face when I'm trying to teach people how to change their lifestyle, is they think, oh, you know, it's how powerful could lifestyle changes be? You know, it's got to be a new drug, a new laser, something really high-tech and expensive. And we're able to show that actually you can actually reverse these different diseases in some ways as an alternative to drugs and surgery. I mean, you know, when most people get put on drugs to lower their cholesterol or blood pressure, blood sugar, and they say, doctor, how long do I have to take these? What does the doctor usually say? Like forever, right? Yeah. For the rest of your life, you know. And when I lecture, I often show a cartoon of doctors busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing. It's like, how long do I have to mop up the floor? Why don't we just turn off the faucet, you know? And then we find that our bodies often have this remarkable capacity to begin healing. And much more quickly than we had once realized when we can turn off the faucet, when we treat the cause. And the cause are really these simple lifestyle changes. And so, you know, in, in the first chapter of the book, I give an example of, a guy who's a doctor himself who had such a massive heart attack that he was told the only thing that could save his life was to have a new heart, a heart transplant. And while waiting to get a donor, because you know you have to wait for someone to get killed to get their heart, he went through my program for reversing heart disease at UCLA. And by the way, Medicare and 
most insurance companies are now covering it in hospitals and clinics around the country, including at UCLA. And he improved so much after nine weeks, he didn't need a heart transplant anymore. His heart was pumping so much better. It's like people say, oh, why do you do this radical intervention of, of diet and lifestyle? Why don't you do something more conventional like a heart transplant? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> what's the more radical intervention here, you know? And yeah, it just shows, yeah. again, how powerful these changes are and how quickly people can get better in ways we can measure. Wow. I, I totally agree with that. In chapter one, you actually mentioned that we're in a new era. It's called the lifestyle era. So what does that era really represent? Well, good question. I, I helped create a field called lifestyle medicine, which is to use lifestyle changes, again, to actually treat and even reverse the most common chronic diseases. And, you know, I think it's the most exciting trend in medicine today. There, I helped found a group called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is offering certification. And uh, every year we have a, an annual conference. And other people include on the founders are people like Dr. David Katz at, uh, at Yale Medical School and Dr. Walter Willett at Harvard and others like him. Uh, and we've, the, the enrollment keeps doubling every year. Last year was over 1,500 doctors who came uh, from all from 63 different countries. And it's because, you know, drugs and surgery have their place. You know, they can be life-saving in a crisis, but they don't, they don't really treat the underlying cause. And so you often have to take them the rest of your life, as we talked about. They have side effects, both known and unknown. You know, for example, half of Americans today are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And yet studies have shown that getting your blood sugar down with drugs doesn't prevent the horrible complications, you know, like blindness and, and heart attacks and strokes and impotence and amputations and kidney failure. Getting it down with drugs doesn't help prevent those horrible things nearly as well as getting it down with diet and lifestyle at a fraction of the cost. And the only side effects are good ones. And we're seeing that in so many different chronic diseases as well. We just started the first randomized trial to see if these same lifestyle changes can actually reverse early stage Alzheimer's disease. And I have a particular personal interest in that because my mom died of Alzheimer's and just seeing her brilliant mind decay. You know, when you lose your memories, you lose everything. And there are no good drugs either for treating Alzheimer's or for preventing it. So I think we're at a state with Alzheimer's very similar to where we were with heart disease 40 years ago, that if, if you look at the animal studies, the epidemiological studies, the interventions that were not as intensive, you could slow or, the, or even sometimes stop the progression. But if we think a more intensive intervention can actually reverse it. It's, you know, the ounce of prevention and the pound of cure. So we're in the midst of that. And by the way, if anyone's listening to this podcast and you live in the greater San Francisco area and you know or, or have early Alzheimer's, uh, go to our website, Ornish.com. It, it, it's all there. Everything is done for free. And uh, it would be part of it would be great to be have you part of our study because if it works, it'll empower literally millions of people with new hope and new choices. And that's why I love doing this work for four decades. It's what gets me out of bed every day. Yeah, that's so cool. I was just talking to my friend because we have people submit questions to you, which we do at the end of this podcast. And I just spoke with my friend and his grandfather just got Alzheimer's and he was like, please ask him about it. You know, so uh, there you go. I think you just answered his question. <laughs> One of the things you did mention in the book is how lifestyle changes actually feel good. You know, if you're able to exercise and you start eating right, you almost instantaneously, like post-workout, after a great meal, yeah, you exactly. feel those changes right away, which makes it a little bit more sustainable for those out there too. Uh, way more sustainable because – when most people think about lifestyle changes, they think about a, preventing something bad from happening years down the road. And, you know, am I going to live longer? Is it just going to seem longer if I, you know, do uh, eat and live healthily? And that's, you know, that's such a false 
choice or the only way you get to live to be 100 is by not doing all the things that make you want to live to be 100. And in fact, (laughs) as you indicate, because these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make these lifestyle changes, eat well, move more, stress less, love more, to the degree that you make them, most people find they feel so much better so quickly in ways that really matter to them. It reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of something bad happening years down the road to joy and pleasure and love and meaning and feeling good, which really are. And in the first chapter of my new book, I I uh, quote this scene from a new film that's coming out in the next few months called Game Changers by uh, James Cameron, you know, the le- legendary filmmaker who did all those great films like Terminator and Titanic and Avatar and so on. Uh, he became he went on a plant based diet a Whole Foods plant-based diet about nine years ago because he was he's an explorer in addition to being an amazing filmmaker. And he learned that more global warming is caused by eating livestock than all forms of transportation combined. In fact, I used to have these friendly arguments with Al Gore and uh, said it's great to drive small cars and fluorescent lights, but the real action is going to be here. And to his great credit, he became a vegan about six or seven years ago. Uh, because uh, even though he's even though Al Gore is a cattle rancher and and um, and James Cameron became a vegan too nine years ago and he's got so much energy because of that. I visited the set of his uh, the new Avatar movie. He's actually filming Avatars two, three, and four all at the same time. He's got so much energy. But it, so there's a so he um, you know the biggest misconceptions that people have about eating a, a plant based diet is that you're kind of a wimp and you don't get enough protein. So he had, along with Luis Saihoyos, who's this another legendary documentary filmmaker who got an Academy Award for making a film called The Cove, which was about the dolphin slaughter in Japan and other great films like that. They made this film called Game Changers, which has all these, I notice you've got Michael Jordan in the back there and uh, Muhammad Ali, all these world-class athletes like that who elevated their game, who became uh, NBA or NFL superstars and, and Olympic medalists and uh, mixed martial artists, national champions and, and so on because they went to a plant-based diet to show that you, know, you actually get stronger and it elevates your game. But there's this one great scene in there that I mentioned in the book about uh, there's a urologist named Aaron Spitz, and he gives these three elite athletes a single, a single meat-based meal. And then at night, they use this device to measure the frequency and the hardness of erections they have. And it turns out that guys have erections at night because it's just part of how what your body does. And they found – and then the next day, they gave the same group a single – plant-based meal and it was disguised you know you really couldn't tell which one you're eating because it was uh, they all look like a burrito and what they found was that after the after the plant-based meal all three guys had three to five hundred percent more frequent erections and 10 to 15 percent harder erections after one meal you know and in fact the, the film crew apparently went on a plant-based diet after shooting this you know um, because again it turns out also that if, if guys have problems with erections what's called erectile dysfunction or impotence it's one of the best predictors if they have heart disease or strokes because the blockages in the arteries are a systemic process they occur throughout your body and so when you eat healthily your brain gets more blood you think more clearly you have more energy you need less sleep you can actually grow so many new brain neurons in just a couple of months, your brain can get bigger, particularly those parts of your brain called the hippocampus that controls memory that you want to get bigger. You know, oftentimes when people get older, they start to think like, what was, what was that guy's name and where did I put my keys? A lot of that's reversible. You know, your skin gets more blood. So you look about 10 or 20 years younger. I, I'm 96. I think I look pretty good, don't you? you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm actually 60, 65 and a half. I'll be 66 soon. Um, your, uh, your heart gets more blood. You can reverse heart disease. Your sexual organs get more blood. And this all happens, you know, within one meal. And so it really reframes this idea from fear of something bad happening or living to be 86 instead of 85, which really doesn't motivate most people, you know, even when you're 85, it's about feeling better. What you gain is so much more than what you give up. And then you go, oh, you literally begin to connect the dots between what you do and how you feel. It's like when I eat this or when I do this, I feel good. When I don't, I feel bad. So I'll do more of this and less of that. And because it comes out of your own experience, that makes it sustainable. And I've gotten in the habit of asking people like, you know, why do you want to do this? Well, I want to live longer. Well, why do you want to live longer? They say, gosh, no one's ever asked me that before. And um, they say things like, well, I don't know. I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to make love with my partner. I want to dance at their wedding. You know, I want to write a book, whatever it happens to have a podcast, whatever it happens to be, become a doctor. Um, if you can get people in touch with that sense of meaning, that also makes it sustainable. Because, you know, when I was in college, I learned I could take all the meaning out of anything. You know, who cares? So what? Big deal. Nothing matters. You know, why bother? And I became so depressed, I almost killed myself. But I also learned that we can imbue our choices with meaning. And one reason why I think all spiritual and religious traditions have dietary guidelines, even though they often are in conflict with each other, whatever the intrinsic benefit is in not eating certain foods, just the act of choosing not to eat something imbues those choices with meaning. And if they're meaningful, then they're sustainable. You know, this goes all the way back to Viktor Frankl. And uh, 60 years ago, he did a study of people who survived concentration camps in World War II. And it wasn't the strongest or the fittest that survived. It was the ones who had the strongest sense of meaning and purpose. You could have two people in the same bunker. One died and one didn't. And it was the one who said, I've got to survive so that I can whatever. I can write a book and bear witness or be reunited with my loved ones, whatever it happened to be. So when you can get in touch with a sense of why do I want to live longer? What is my sense of meaning? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Then, first of all, you're more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life-enhancing than ones that are than, than ones that are self-destructive. But it also helps you live not only longer but better. I have to acknowledge you for sharing that you were once suicidal, because to think that what if in college you decided to take your life? Imagine all this groundbreaking work that you've done now, like that would be left undone. So just for anybody out there, just to think about that and to think what they have, so much work that they have inside of themselves that could be, you know, in line with what you're doing or whether it's sports, whether it's outside of medicine, you know, I feel like we all do have something that we could contribute to the world. And no you, know, you being vulnerable enough to share that, that's, that's very powerful. Well, thank you. Well, you know, it's, I mean, one of the things that I've since learned by having these spiritual experiences is that when you die, you know, if you commit suicide, it looks like people are peaceful, but your your body's gone, but you're still there. Your soul yeah. is, you know, you are, we have a body, but that's not who we are. We have a brain, that's not who we are. We are yeah. Our souls live on, and then you just don't have a body. And then I think one of the worst things that would have happened to me had I committed suicide was to see what, what my life could have been like and all the people it could have touched. It's kind of like, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why people like to watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas with Jimmy Stewart, you know, where he has that same kind of experience and he, and and... And how Pottersville, you know, you know, went to the dark side because of his death. And so we're all here for a reason. It gets back to what we were saying before about why is it so powerful to have to get people in touch with that sense of meaning and purpose? We're all here to learn and to grow in wisdom and to love better and to serve each other. And to me, 
then health just becomes a vehicle for that and not an end in itself. Amen. And the paradox is when you come from that place, then you're healthier anyway and you're more successful. Wow. You know, you mentioned James Cameron. I also read that you were President Bill Clinton's consulting physician since 1993. Is that true? One of them, yes. Wow. See, that's that's Matt's profession right there, man. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happened because um, – in 93, shortly after he became president, Hillary Clinton and I met in the uh, West Wing of the White House. We were introduced by a mutual friend. And I kind of went through the science of the reversing heart disease studies that we just published. And she said, you know, would you work with the chefs who cook for us? And I, I said, say that again. And she repeated. I said, well, of course, I'd be honored. So we worked with the White House chefs and later the Camp David chefs, the Air Force One chefs to cook healthier food for the president, Mrs. Clinton. And then I became one of his consulting physicians when he'd have his annual physical exam. I'd come in as one of the only non-military doctors. And we became friends. And, and nine years ago, when his bypass is clogged up, one of his cardiologists held a press conference and said, oh, it was all in his genes and his diet and lifestyle had nothing to do with it. And having been working with him for so many years, I knew it had, it had, it had everything to do with it. So I sent him an email and I said, look, uh, I say this not to blame, but to empower you, because if it's all in your genes, then you're just a victim and you're not a victim. You're one of the most powerful guys in the world. Um, <clears throat> and so we met a few days later and he's now been doing it for nine years now. And I think, you know, whatever your politics, when a former president, especially one who was known for not eating so healthfully, begins to do this, it shows, oh, maybe I can do it too. And it's worth doing. And he's doing really well because of that. Wow. That's so cool. You know, you mentioned the the new unified theory of health and healing. And I think it's so important to touch on that for future physicians and physicians alike, right? So can you delve a little bit deeper into that? Yeah. I mean, the idea is that they're really the same disease manifesting in different ways. Yeah. And then it helps explain why you'll often find many patients have multiple what are called comorbidities. They'll have heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and be overweight and so on because they're all really just different manifestations of the same underlying disorder. And, you know, oxidative stress, changes in chronic inflammation and telomeres and gene expression. We did a study... Uh, we published with Craig Venter, who was the first to decode the human genome, yeah. showing that these same lifestyle changes could change your genes. You know, when, when I was in medical school, we were told the only way you could change your genes is to change your parents, which is kind of hard, you know, that you're stuck with your genes, in other words. But in fact, we can turn on the good genes and turn off the bad genes by what we do in, in, in our lifestyles. Over, we found over 500 genes were changed in just three months, <clears throat> turning on the genes that keep us healthy, turning off the ones that cause us to get sick. Uh, through switches called methylation and different proteins called histones and non-histones and sirtuins and others that I talk about in the book that kind of turn on or turn off the, these genes and make them healthy or non-healthy. We did a study, we, we showed for the first time that telomeres, which are the ends of our chromosomes, are, they're like the plastic tips on the ends of a shoelace to keep your shoelace from unraveling. They actually keep our DNA from unraveling. And as we get older, when the DNA replicates, they tend to get shorter and shorter. And as our telomeres get shorter, our lives get shorter. And the risk of premature death from pretty much all of these chronic diseases goes up, again, because they're all related. And so uh, the, the Nobel Prize in medicine a few years ago went to, to Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who yep. discovered telomeres and their role. And we did a study together, and we showed for the first time that we could actually lengthen telomeres. And when we published this in The Lancet, the Lancet editors sent out a press release worldwide, and they called it reversing aging at a cellular level, which it really is. Uh, we, we found that angiogenesis is downregulated. Chronic inflammation is downregulated. 
the more the diseases we study and the more underlying biological mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain that. And, you know, you know, so many people talking about personalized diets and personalized this and personalized that. But we actually found that it was the same diet and lifestyle program that reversed all of these different conditions because they're really just the same condition manifesting in different ways. And it also helps explain why whole countries that tended to eat a whole foods plant-based diet and had exercise and had strong social ties and, and were able to manage stress because of their spiritual uh, upbringing, like in China, for example, or much of Asia, you know, 60 or 70 years ago, heart disease and diabetes and prostate, breast, colon cancer and so on were as rare there as malaria is here. And yet once they start to eat like us and live like us, they start to die like us because they have the same diversity of genes that we have here. But for example, even if you're not very effective at metabolizing the amount of fat, saturated fat and cholesterol in your diet, if you're not eating that much of it, it doesn't matter. You know, and so... You know, yes, there are genetic differences, but, you know, if you're eating a healthy diet, they really, they're kind of dormant. They don't, doesn't really matter that much. It's only when you start to eat a, a Western diet that they become that way. And again, it helps ex to explain why whole countries can have such low rates of these diseases. Now, if you're talking about, you know, a targeted immunotherapy for a particular line of pancreatic or melanoma cell line, that's awesome. But for the vast majority of chronic diseases, it wasn't like there was one set of diet and lifestyle recommendations for reversing heart disease, a different one for diabetes or prostate cancer. It was the same for all of them. And it also helps explain why. I mean, you know, it's not like you say, well, I have, I have just to do this kind of exercise because I've got heart disease and this kind and that kind of exercise. I have diabetes. It's just exercise. You know, if you like it, you'll do it. It's the same with diet and lifestyle as well. And it's such a simple idea that I was sure that somebody else had come up with it, but it turns out, you know, no one has. And, and that, to me, are always the best ideas, the ones that seem kind of obvious, except they're only obvious in retrospect. That's so true. You know, you mentioned 2018 large-scale study of more than 100,000 patients at Harvard School of Public Health. They found that just adopting five healthy lifestyle habits – they had an 82% lower risk of getting cardiovascular disease, 65% lower chance of dying from cancer, 74% lower chance of all-cause mortality. So, you know, it's yeah. – it's, it's And no the, same thing was, the same thing was found in the EPIC study that was done in Europe. It was a European study. Yep. And they found that simple lifestyle changes that 93% of diabetes was preventable. Now, yeah. think about that. Half of the population today okay. is diabetic or pre-diabetic, and yet 93% of that is preventable today, and it's probably closer to 100% if people made even bigger changes in lifestyle. And we spent $380 billion last year in the U.S. alone just on treating diabetes, not to mention the horrible complications of, you know, we talked about earlier, blindness and impotence and heart attacks and strokes and amputations and so on. And again, getting your blood sugar down with drugs doesn't prevent those horrible complications nearly as well as getting it down with diet and lifestyle at a fraction of the cost. And again, the only side effects here are, are good ones. Exactly, right. And that's that's a great segue to get into inflammation and diet. What we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much, in love, how much love and support we have affect each one of these mechanisms, including inflammation, but not limited to that. That's why it's so far reaching because all of these diseases really share the same underlying biological pathways and mechanisms. Each one is influenced by eat well, move more, stress less, love more including inflammation. And so inflammation is not a bad thing, just like stress, you know, 
over stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system is not a bad thing. It's when it becomes chronic that it becomes an issue. You know, if you acute inflammation is actually healing. If you cut yourself, you know, you're, you want your body to have inflammation. It brings more of the white blood cells there to get rid of the, to keep you from getting an infection. It, it makes your finger swollen. So you're going to leave it alone and give your body a chance to heal it. If you've sprained it, for example, you know, there are lots of reasons like that. But when it's chronically stimulated, it becomes an issue. And the same is true for stress and the sympathetic nervous system. You know, we're kind of evolved and wired so that to deal with acute stresses, you know, you're walking along in the jungle, the mythical saber-toothed tiger jumps out at you and you deal with it. You know, you want your heart rate to pump faster. You want your eyes to dilate. You want your kidneys to secrete more adrenaline and stress hormones because it gives you more energy so you can fight or run better. You can either kill the tiger, you run away from it, or the tiger eats you. But one way or another, it's over. You know, it's not chronically all throughout the day, day after day, week <laughs> after week. And what happens is that these same mechanisms that have really evolved to protect us can harm us and even kill us because they're so chronically activated. That's why things like stress management can be so important because the stress comes not so much from what you do, but more importantly, is how you react to what you do. And there was a great study that Dr. Blackburn, again, who did the telomeres, did um, with Alyssa Apple of women who were under chronic, really bad chronic emotional stress because they were taking care of, of kids with autism or parents with Alzheimer's. And the more stress they reported feeling and the longer they felt stress, the shorter their telomeres were. And when they compared the length of the telomeres of the low stress women and the high stress women, they found that the high stress women had shorter telomeres that was indicative of a nine to 17 year shortening of their lifespan just from the stress. But what was even more interesting to me was that it wasn't that objective measure of stress, it was the women's perception of it that determined how it affected them. Yep, in other words, yep. you could have two women in very similar life situations, but one of them was coping with it better. They were eating healthy, they were meditating, they had love and support in their lives, they were exercising. And so you can buffer and mitigate a lot of that. And you know, and I often have patients say things to me like, you know, I used to have a, a short fuse and I'd explode easily. Things would really get me under, get under my skin easily. But now that I've been doing these changes, my fuse is longer. Things don't bother me as much. I don't have to like, am I going to hold it in and make myself miserable or explode and make everyone else miserable? Things just don't bother me as much. And so that's part of why, as you mentioned earlier, when you make these lifestyle changes, yeah, you'll probably live longer, but you know, who wants to live longer if you're not having fun? You'll actually enjoy your life that much more in all the ways that matter the most. Correct me if I'm wrong. So you know, I learned about alkaline tide in, in medical school and the physiology behind that, you know, in pop culture, they call it the itis, right? So everybody knows after you eat a large meal, say I went to McDonald's and had a big burger, you get really tired after that, right? And yeah. you know, what, what's going on is, you know, our stomach needs to produce acid. You have a biochemical reaction that happens. And that might be able to connect to what you say in the book where you say we have less blood flow to the brain and other organs when we eat specifically animal protein, right? Because it requires a little bit more acid to be broken down. Am I am I correct in assuming that? Uh, and meat does cause that. And you're right. It's, you know, I, I debated Dr. Atkins, you know, I, countless times before um, he ultimately died of, uh, and he was he claimed he'd slipped and hit his head, but his autopsy, which was published, showed that he died of massive heart disease, heart failure. 
Um, so to get past this whole fat versus carbs debate is to really focus on the animal protein itself. Mm-hmm. And studies are showing now that people who eat a lot of animal protein have a 75% increased risk of premature death from all causes and a four to 500% increased higher risk of premature death from pretty much all causes, particularly cancer, diabetes, and, um, and heart disease. And so um, one of the benefits of moving to a plant-based diet is that you're not only getting the animal protein that can cause so many different diseases, but you're getting literally hundreds of thousands of protective substances, things like phytochemicals and bioflavonoids and carotenoids, retinols, isoflavones, genistein, lycopene, on and on and on. And where do you find these substances? You find them mostly in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes. And they have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, and and anti-aging properties. So you really get a double benefit when you move towards a plant-based diet. You're not getting the things that really cause you to get sick, and you're getting lots of other ones that keep you healthy and that are really protective. But it's not all or nothing. If you're trying to reverse a life-threatening condition, condition, that's really the pound of cure. It's hard to do that because, you know, that's why we were able to show for the first time that we could reverse all these different conditions as most people didn't go far enough. But if you're just trying to stay healthy, lose a few pounds, you know, one of the interesting findings that really surprised me in all of our studies was I had predicted incorrectly, as it turned out, that the younger patients who had milder disease would do better when they changed their lifestyle. But I was wrong. It turned out it wasn't how old they were and it wasn't how sick they were. It was simply a function of the more they changed, the better they got and the better they felt. And the better they felt, the more they wanted to keep doing it. And they got into this virtuous cycle. But but we found the same reversal of heart disease in a guy who was 86 when he started as in a guy who was 42 when he started. And that's really a very empowering realization. Again, not to blame, but to empower. Because as long as you're alive, you know, and you and you're stable, and you're willing to make these changes, to the degree you do it, you're likely to benefit. So you don't have to be quite so strict if you're just trying to stay healthy. You know, you if you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you failed or you're bad. You know, all those kind of the whole language of behavioral change has this kind of finger wagging. You know, you're bad, fascist, uh, you know, moralistic, judgmental quality to it. You know, even the words like I cheated on my diet, you know, are once you call foods good or bad, it's a very small step to saying I'm a bad person because I ate bad food. You might as well finish the, the burger or the pint of ice cream at that point. But I'm saying, look, what matters most if you're just trying to stay healthy is your overall way of eating and living. You don't have time to exercise one day, do a little more the next. You don't have time to meditate for an hour, do it for a minute. Whatever you do, there's a corresponding benefit. And then it, you get away from this whole idea of, you know, if you go on a diet, you're going to go off the diet and you have all that shame and guilt and humiliation and anger, which really are toxic for you. You can be much more loving and compassionate with yourself. Now, if you're trying to reverse a life-threatening disease, you really do have to be pretty strict. That's what it takes. I'd love to be able to say that you don't, but that's what it takes. That's the pound of cure. You decide how much you want to change. And it's not some doctor or some book that's telling you. So when it comes to animal protein, that, that will come from animals. I know B12 is only found in animal protein. So I know some of our med students are, are going to ask that question. So sure. what, what do you say to that um, when when they say, hey, I might need animal protein. I might need to eat meat for that. Well, the only, about the only thing that you don't get in uh, a strict vegan diet is B12. Mm-hmm. But you can take a vitamin. You know, you have a your body has a five to seven year store of B12. It's pretty hard to get B12 deficient unless you've got some, you know, surgical issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just take a vitamin. That's what I do. It's not a big deal. I did want to move into soda and high fructose corn syrup just because, 
you know, this is something that's uh, it's pretty prevalent. You know, everybody has a soda every now and then, right? So you mentioned in the book, one can of soda per day led to an increase of inflammatory markers. Consuming more than two ounces of high fructose corn syrup can lead to a spike of C-reactive protein in just 30 minutes. <laughs> Drinking sodas are not very good for you, you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's sugar, um, whether it's in high fructose corn syrup or cane sugar or whatever, um, it gets absorbed very quickly into your body. Uh, and for example, it's like if, if you go from brown rice to white rice or from whole wheat flour to white flour, you're removing the fiber in the bran, and it's the fiber in the bran that generally fill you up before you get too many calories. But it also, they slow the absorption from your gut into your blood. And so you get this kind of visceral graph of your blood sugar. It kind of goes up slowly and then it kind of comes down slowly. But when you eat a lot of, when you remove the fiber, you eat a lot of white flour or white rice or or things like that, or sugar, or high fructose corn syrup, it's like mainlining sugar. Your, your blood sugar zooms up. Your pancreas, it gets to these high levels, so your pancreas senses that your blood sugar is too high, so it does what it's supposed to do, which is reduce it, release insulin. The insulin lowers your blood sugar, but the insulin, first of all, it, it generally, it's like pulling a pendulum to one side and letting it go. It doesn't just stop in the middle. It goes back to the other side. So your blood sugar gets too high, then it gets too low. That low blood sugar creates this need for like carbohydrate craving and kind of becomes a, like an addictive cycle. But the other thing that happens is these chronic surges of insulin cause chronic inflammation, which we talked about earlier. They can downregulate the receptor that the insulin binds to. You know, people that have type 2 diabetes, uh, which is what most uh, adults have who have diabetes, have actually are producing more insulin than you or I are. It's, it's the type 1 diabetics, the juvenile onset that used to be called, that their pancreas isn't really producing enough of it. It's an autoimmune disease. But for the vast majority of Americans with diabetes, they're actually making more insulin than you or I do. But it's but the receptor that the insulin binds to is downregulated. It's kind of like, I like to use the example of the boy who cried wolf. You remember that old Aesop's fable? <laughs> That's so good. It's I've like, never heard that. Well, I made it up. It's like, um, <laughs> it's like, the, from an insulin receptor standpoint, it gets bombarded with all these insulin receptors. It goes, oh, man, not more insulin. I'm just going to shut down, you know. And so all this insulin doesn't really have much of an effect. You get what's called insulin resistance, which is the precursor to type 2 diabetes. But when you eat a healthier diet and you meditate and you exercise and you love more, these, these receptors begin to upregulate. They become more insulin sensitive. And that's why we invariably find, almost invariably find, that Diabetics who are taking medications to lower their blood sugar under their doctor's supervision can often reduce or get off them altogether, and yet their blood sugars remain normal because the insulin receptors have become more sensitive and are working more normally again. That's phenomenal. So let's talk sympathetic nervous system and chronic emotional stress. You kind of touched on that a little bit. So how much can chronic emotional stress, which is in our head, how much can that affect the body? Well, your mind affects every cell in your body, every organ in your body, you know, through direct nerves called the sympathetic nervous system. Um, and you have the parasympathetic nervous, like the yin and the yang. The sympathetic nervous system is what stresses you out. And again, it's designed, we are designed or evolved, depending on your point of view, to help you deal with acute stresses. So your eyes widen so you can see more clearly. Your muscles tighten so that if you get hit, it doesn't hurt as much. Your arteries constrict all over your body. Your platelets form blood clots more easily so that if the tiger bites you or you get wounded in battle, you don't bleed as quickly. So these are all designed your adrenaline pumps so you can run faster. 
Um, but in, it, when they're chronically activated, you know, when you wake up in the morning, the alarm clock jars you up and then you, you realize that you're, you know, you're late for work and you get to work and your boss yells at you and your kid says, oh, by the way, I just want to let you know that I'm, uh, I've been addicted to heroin, you know, just whatever it happens to be. You know, the stresses just pile on top of each other. And so these mechanisms that are really help, supposed to help us survive can actually harm us or even kill us. So, for example, it's not just the arteries in your arms and legs that constrict so that the, if you get wounded, you don't bleed as much. The ones in your heart or your brain can constrict so you can get a stroke or a heart attack or dementia. You know, blood clots can form there that the platelets become stickier so they're more likely to form blood clots, which can cause heart attack or stroke. You know, your sexual function... Uh, doesn't work as well. Uh, you get chronic neck or back pain because your muscles are always tense, waiting for somebody to hit you, you know? And uh, that's why gentle yoga type stretching, just like your mind affects your body, your body affects your mind. So, and the breath is like the intermediary, it's the link between your mind and your body. It both reflects how you're feeling and can alter how you're feeling. So, when you're stressed, most people breathe fast and shallow. If you're force yourself to breathe more slowly and deeply, which is what happens when you're relaxed, it actually makes you relaxed. And so the breath can both change as well as reflect our state of stress. When you meditate on a regular basis, as we talked about earlier, your threshold for what causes you to feel stress goes up. Your fuse gets longer. I mean, we've all experienced that when you're, you don't get enough sleep and you're tired and you're run down, the day-to-day -day aggravations can often be the most stressful, you know, waiting for the elevator or like somebody cuts you off in traffic or whatever it happens to be. In the book, I talk about, you know, the ancient swamis and rabbis and priests and monks and nuns and so on didn't develop meditation or these other techniques to, um, you know, perform better in sports or to do better in the business world or in school. It can do all those things. Yeah. But they were really designed to quiet down our mind and body to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being and to realize that that's really our natural state. And that's a radical concept for a lot of people because our whole culture, for the most part, especially the advertising industry and all these reality TV shows and so on, it's like, if only you get more stuff, then you'll be happy. You know, yeah. if only I had. So people say, gosh, I'm really feeling stressed. I'm really feeling lonely. I don't feel like I'm being loved enough. If I must be lacking something. If only I had more whatever, more money, more power, more beauty, more accomplishment, you know, whatever, you fill in the blank. If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. Then people would love me. Then I wouldn't feel so lonely. Then I, everything would be great. Please. People don't realize that once you set up that view of the world, however it turns out, you generally feel bad because until you get it, you feel stressed. If someone else gets it and you don't, then you really feel stressed and it makes you feel like we really live in this hostile, doggy dog, zero-sum game world that the more you get, the less stress for me and you better get it while you can. And even if you get it, it's great because it makes it very seductive because in the moment it's like, ah, I got it. I'm happy. Yeah. But it doesn't, doesn't usually last. It's usually followed either by now what? I remember a patient years ago told me, you know, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed. I'm already looking over the next one. It's never enough. Or if it's not now what? It's so what? Big deal. And another patient said, you know, the letdown that comes from accomplishing a goal is so great. I always make sure I have a dozen projects going at the same time so I can immediately shift my attention there. And so one of the reasons I call the book Undo It is that I studied for 40 years with an ecumenical teacher named Swami Satchidananda. And people would say, what are you, a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo. <laughs> 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 and the, uh, and the whole idea was that 
Um, these techniques don't bring you a sense of peace or well-being or even our health, that it's our nature to be peaceful and easeful. And when we disturb that, we get diseased, we get disturbed, you know. And so it's it may sound like semantic uh, hair splitting, but it's the implications are really profound because if I have to get my sense of health and happiness from outside myself, then everybody who has something I need has control over my life. Yeah. If it's me, if I have it already, and in the great, perhaps the ultimate paradox in the process of running after all these things that we think are going to make us happy and peaceful, that process of running after them disturbs what we could have already if we just stopped doing that. Exactly. And the Swami, the Swami liked to give an analogy. Imagine you had a tray of water and you keep trying to smooth out the water by running your hand over. You just create more waves. If you just stop doing it, everything settles down. So at the end of a meditation or the end of a yoga class, remind yourself that this, the, the meditation didn't bring you that sense of peace, but at least temporarily, you stopped disturbing what was there already. Yes. Then if you take it even deeper, it allows you to hear your own inner wisdom. You know, we all have a uh, an inner teacher, an inner guru, inner wise, whatever, uh, sometimes called the still small voice within. It's the voice that speaks very clearly but quietly. It's the one that wakes me up at three in the morning and says, hey, Dean, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. And my most creative thoughts, in fact, all every study that I've ever done, which knock on wood, they've all worked comes from listening to that voice. Yep. It's very intuitive and then kind of reverse engineering. Let's say, okay, let's design a study and see if that's true or not. And so I've learned at the end of a meditation that uh, when my mind is more quiet to, to listen to that voice, say, hey, identify yourself to me. Like, go, oh, hi, Dean, or whatever. And say, what, am, and then I ask it. I say a very simple question, but a very powerful one. What am I not paying attention to that I need to pay attention to? And then listen. And it's amazing what comes out. And, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. And the final thing that happens, that when you take it even deeper, is that uh, it changes your brain waves. You know, uh, you, we have alpha, theta, delta, and gamma brain waves. And the latest studies coming out showing that anything that elicits gamma waves actually may reverse Alzheimer's disease, you know, and at least in animals, um, and cause less amyloid plaque to be deposited in their brains. That's how powerful these techniques are. And if you take it even further, it gives you the direct experience of transcendence, that on one level, you know, we're, we're separate. You're you and I'm me, and we can enjoy having this conversation. But on another level, we're part of something larger that connects us all. Whatever name you give to that, even to give it a name is to limit what's essentially an infinite or limitless or ineffable experience. And the Swami used to talk about having that double vision that he liked to use the example of a, an old time movie projector with, you know, the, with movie film, you know, where you'd have a light behind the projector and it'd be filtered through the film and you get all these great dramas projected on the screen. But to the extent that you could also identify with the light behind that projector, the, the duality and the oneness, then you can really enjoy the drama without getting caught in it and without getting sick uh, from the chronic stress that getting caught, that that, caught in that often leads to. Amen. You know, I've been meditating for five years now. And about four years ago, when I was meditating, the idea of medspiration came to me. You know, and that was listening to that inner wisdom. And, wow. you know, there's a new wave coming where people are understanding the power of meditation. And just the things that we could gain from it, from a mental, physical, and spiritual standpoint is just 
Uh, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. So I'm thankful. Well, you know, so- and, and by the way, you know, even the, the athletes like, uh, you know, like Michael Jordan and other world-class athletes, they yep. use meditation because yep. at that level, it's a, it's, it's a mental game. You know, they're all superb athletes. You know, they're not that much different athletically. If, uh, it's the mental game. And so they all use these techniques because it gives them a competitive advantage, ironically. But I'm just curious, what was the insight that you had that you learned when you were meditating? So, you know, people always told me I should become a blogger and I should do stuff with um, the inspiring knowledge that I was gaining, right? And I was actually sitting at an ocean and I was meditating that day and, you know, I was able to calm myself down and this idea of like inspiration came to me and I was like, medicine? It was my first year in medical school at that time, right? And people were always telling me, you're really inspiring. So, it was at one moment where it clicked to me. It was like medspiration. And I didn't know what it was going to become. But uh, now, now we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh-huh. And we're huge on social media. We reach over a million people a week, you know. So, wow. Um, but initially when I got that idea, I knew that it was bigger than me. And I knew that it was going to go on to change everything, you know. And like when I had that insight – I just followed it, you know, and every day since then I followed it. And it brings people like you on our podcast. That's, (laughs) that's the same, man. (laughs) Well, you know what, you know what the word inspiration comes from to inspire, you know, to breathe, you know, as opposed to expire, which is to exhale, but also to die, you know, so uh, it's a great name. That's, that's beautiful. There's a technique in yoga called Anadi Sudhi. It's an alternate nostril breathing where you inhale through one nostril, switch, exhale through the other, inhale, switch. And it really balances the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And we don't even have a, a way of explaining that in Western physiology, but it works. You know, So these are old ideas that we're rediscovering. So let's talk about the microbiome. You did mention it a little bit. It's pretty mind-blowing for us to think that there's more bacteria in our body uh, than cells, right? And our microbiome can affect our mood, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, there's uh, the, the chapter heading is some of my best friends are germs because we have over 100 million bacteria and, and other organisms in our bodies that exist in a dynamic equilibrium with us. It's a really great metaphor when you think about it. It's like, you know, anything that brings us together is healing. You know, even the word healing comes from the root to make whole. You know, yoga comes from the Sanskrit to yoke, to unite, union. These are really old ideas. And the ability to coexist with 100 trillion cells that keep us healthy, you know, is a great metaphor for how we should be, you know, existing with the uh, the 7 or 8 billion people on the planet as well. Wow. And these cells also uh, excrete, you know, serotonin and gamma GABA and other neurotransmitters and the balance can be taken out by what we eat for example or even how stressed we are and, or exercise all these things affect the microbiome antibiotics can shift your microbiome in dramatic ways that yeah. sometimes take up to a year to restore and so to the degree that we can keep our immune system strong by eating well moving more stressing less and loving more and don't need these antibiotics then uh, we can help to Um, keep our microbiome in good stead. And unfortunately, because they feed antibiotics to so many livestock, you get traces of those in your food, which may alter your microbiome, even if you're not taking the antibiotic pills, just from eating a lot of animal protein. So it's yet yet another reason why eating a plant-based diet may be good for you. Uh, Next, I wanted to discuss something that impacted my life a ton through med school. That was sitting and studying, right? So they're saying that sitting is the new cigarettes. It's the new smoking, right? So 
um, according to some studies, right? So I read some cool stuff in your book about that, and I think it's really important that we get that message out there. So can you tell us more? Yeah, well, it's it's you know, it, to the degree you can incorporate exercise into your life, you're going to do it. If it's if if you like it, you'll do it. So do what you like. You know, I used to get. Um, uh, annoyed when I couldn't find a parking place near the gym. I thought that's ridiculous, you know. So right. I, I, I've deliberately parked farther away, which reduces my stress because I can find a parking space easier. And I just incorporate it into my life, you know, taking the stairs a couple of flights. You know, intense exercise done for short bursts can actually, if you don't have heart disease, can actually um, give you the benefit of a longer workout that's done more mildly, more more mildly, or with uh, you know, um, more moderately. I guess is the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And something as simple as you know buying a portable phone so like walking around the office you know while you're uh, talking on the phone as opposed to sitting at a desk gives you a double benefit because you're not just sitting and you're exercising so anything you can do to incorporate exercise in your daily life if you like it you're going to keep doing it and that's what makes it work the facts there spending a lot more time sitting down increases your risk of stroke Type 2 diabetes by 90%. It's crazy. Mind-blowing. 147% increase in the relative risk of cardiovascular disease. When I read this, I was sitting down. I was at the library. You know, I'm, re- <laughs> I'm reading your book, and I, I actually got up, and I was like, I'm going to walk around while I do this. Yeah, don't, don't, don't read this sitting down. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. And you actually said that, um, you know, just taking two minutes, even every half hour, to just get up yeah. and walk around. It could yeah. dramatically increase that blood flow, and you could really reverse those things, right? So, yeah. or if you're on a train or a subway or a or a airplane, whatever, just get up and walk up and down the aisles a couple times every half hour. Or so it makes a big difference. Hundred percent. I wanted to get into mindful eating a little bit. You do mention that mindful eating can support you in swapping out unhealthy habits and behaviors. You mentioned asking yourself the right questions can really help you become a more mindful eater. Could you get into a little bit of detail about that? Yeah, mindful eating is just eating with awareness and as opposed to mindless eating, which we often do. And we've all had the experience of watching a, a movie and maybe eating some popcorn and you're kind of engrossed in the movie and then you look down and the box of popcorn's empty. It's like, who ate this? You got all the calories and didn't really even enjoy it. Well, if you really pay attention to what you're doing, you have more pleasure with fewer calories. Uh, you know, there's a meditation that my wife Anne did called Eating with Ecstasy, where she'll take just like a single piece of whatever your favorite fruit or like my case, dark chocolate. And just, you know, instead of just gulping it down, just really savor it. Involve all of your senses. Look at the color, the, the way that it smells, you know, how it was made, you know, put it in your mouth. Let it melt there. You know, just, just chew it. Just let it, you know, you can spend five minutes or more on a single piece of chocolate. It's exquisitely um, sensual and delicious, but you get very relatively few calories. So that's really whether it's food or sex or music or art or massage or anything that's sensual. When you really give it your full attention, you get a lot more pleasure. And in the case of food, with a lot fewer calories. And also, you, when you eat mindfully, you pay attention when you when you're full. You know, you don't have to wait until your pants don't fit before you realize, oh wait, maybe I should stop eating. You know, you can eat when you're full but not stuffed. You also pay attention to how the food affects you. So like oh when I eat healthy I feel more light I'm thinking more clearly my you know I, I look better I smell better I taste better my sexual functions better you know, all that you know when I eat a, a really uh, junky food or a lot of uh, fat or animal protein I, I feel a little tired and sluggish you know and then it comes out of your own experience and so you literally connect the dots between what you do and what you eat and how you feel it's like 
well, when I do this, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So I'll do more of this and less of that. And that makes it sustainable because then it's not some debate. Then you just know from your own experience. You know, that reminds me of when I was in med school. I went to this Leaps for Integrative Medicine retreat and uh, they made us put our phones away and they made us like every morning come to breakfast and nobody could speak. So we'd sit down with people, but we wouldn't be able to speak. And that was our job to use our five senses to be able to really enjoy the experience of eating. And I did notice I ate less and I enjoyed the food more. So it's it's okay. just right in line with what you're saying. So what are some questions I can ask myself in order to become a more mindful eater? Well, you know, questions is one way, but just it's all about awareness. And so just, you know, what am I eating? You know, what does it look like? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? Things that may seem so basic, but as you indicated, you know, with the advent of iPhones and so on, we're so continually bombarded and distracted. You know, in fact, one of the best gifts you can give someone in a conversation with them is just give them your full attention. You know, and people yeah, who are, yeah. one of the things I try to teach my 18-year-old son is that when people feel seen and regarded, <clears throat> they're much more likely to help you. You know, I get, uh, you know, if you've ever been with someone like a Bill Clinton, you know, I mean, he can be in a room with a thousand people. And he makes you feel like you're the most, or Quincy Jones or someone like that. Like wow. you're the most important person in the universe at that moment. And you really feel that way because it's all about giving people your undivided attention. And in the case of food, when you do that, or whatever you're doing, <clears throat> if you can bring that same kind of mindfulness to everyday life, when you're washing dishes, you know, wash them fully, give it your full attention. It makes the act of what you're doing in meditation, as well as the fact you're going to do it better, you're going to enjoy it more, and you're going to have a lot fewer negative consequences, of, for example, of eating too many calories. I agree. You, you mentioned in the book, your environment can have a compelling influence on how you feel, how you eat. You even said people who eat in front of a TV, studies show that they eat 40% more food and enjoy it less, right? That's right, because, because again, <clears throat> pardon me, you're, you're paying attention to the TV, you're not paying attention to what you're eating. And your mind, you know, we think that we can multitask, but you really can only do one thing at a time. Your mind can shift very quickly between things, but then you're not really giving it your full attention, and so you're not you're really doing anything well. So when do I eat? You mentioned this in the book about physical hunger and emotional hunger, uh, knowing the difference. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, most of the time we eat for the, the tongue and, and, and the time as opposed to the tummy, you know, is what an old yoga teacher once told me. Um, that we should eat, wait, wait until you're hungry and then eat. If it's noon and you're not hungry, then eat very little or, you know, say I'll, I'll just skip lunch or eat something a little later in the day. Uh, you know, instead of being the, the, you know, really paying attention to what we're doing and food so often, you know, one of the things that I learned is that information is important, but it's not usually sufficient to motivate most people to make lasting changes in, in their behavior. I mean, if it were, nobody would smoke. It's not like I they say, hey, did you know smoking is bad for you? I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. You go, well, I didn't know that. You're the first person who's ever told me that. You know, it's like <laughs> on every pack of cigarettes. So the question is, why do we smoke? Why do we overeat? Why do we abuse opioids? Why do we abuse other drugs? Why do we play too many video games? Whatever it happens to be. Um, and I'd ask patients in our studies, because we got to know each other well, I'd say, teach me something. Why do you do these things? They, they seem so maladaptive. They say, you don't get it, Dean. They're not maladaptive. They're very adaptive, because they help us deal with our loneliness, our depression, our anxiety, our emotional pain. I've had patients say things like, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes, and they're always there for me, and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? You know, or 
food, you know, fills that void or fat. A well-known food writer said, you know, when I get depressed, I eat a lot of fat. It coats my nerves and numbs the pain, you know, or, you know, it fills that void or, you know, same with, you know, opioids numb the pain, drinking to excess numbs the pain, working all the time, distracts yourself from that pain. It's more socially acceptable, serves the same function. Video games, another way of kind of wasting a lot of time, but it's really not so much wasting time. It's more numbing ourselves. And really the whole point of our program is to treat the cause and to really deal with the underlying cause. And the behavior is really not the issue and information is not usually, I mean, we're drowning in information in the era of Google. We have to say, you know, what is really going on here? And I think that what's really going on is the breakdown of the social networks that used to give people a sense of love and connection and community. You know, 50 or 60 years ago, people had that. They had a, most people anyway, they had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a, a job that felt secure that they'd been at for 10 years and got to know their coworkers. They had two or three generations of people in a neighborhood, you know. They had a church or a synagogue or a club that they went to regularly. And what happens in those kinds of environments, when you go up in a neighborhood with two or three generations of people, they know you. And they don't yeah. just know your, your, your bio sketch or your Facebook profile. They know all of you. They know where you messed up. They know your demons. They know your shortcomings. And they're still there for you. And there's something really primal and healing about being seen in that way, kind of like in Avatar when James Cameron said, I see you, you know, which is really an African proverb. You know, I see all of you, not just, in fact, one of the studies I, I cite in my new book is that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Mm -hmm. Because... It looks like it's not a true authentic intimacy. It looks like everybody has this perfect life but you. And so the idea in our support groups, in our study, the love more part of it isn't just romantic love. I mean, it can be, but it can be love between friends or, you know, a parent and a child, even having a dog, you know, anything that brings us together in an authentic way where someone in our group can say, oh, you know, I might look like the perfect dad, but, you know, my dad, my kid's not doing so well or. I'm not doing so well, or my marriage isn't doing so well, or my school, or my work, or whatever it happens to be. And other people can go, wow, you know, I'm having issues too. Now, it doesn't change the fact that you've got issues, but suddenly it really makes all the difference in terms of feeling seen in an authentic way, that people are there for you in an authentic way. And just that sense of love and caring makes it easier to go back out and really solve those problems, you know, with, with, with beginner's mind and fresh eyes and that kind of love and support. I couldn't agree more with that. I did have a, a question. So, you know, I have a sweet tooth. Uh, I like chocolate chip cookies. And you mentioned in the book that when you do eat bad carbs, you should eat them in the same meal as good carbs. So uh, what's the physiology behind that? How's that work? Well, I like chocolate as well in all of different forms. So do, eating with awareness is part of it. But anytime you're eating refined carbs, whether it's sugar or white flour, or white rice, you know, dessert or whatever, a cookie – if you eat it with good carbs that are high in fiber, the good carbs fiber will slow the rate of absorption and will also fill you up before you get too many calories. So you're much more likely to be able to eat it without getting, you know, uh, too many calories. That makes sense. I'm actually going to do that tonight. So when I when I have a cookie, I'm going to close my eyes. That's actually something I haven't done just to savor it, right? Let's see if I could eat one cookie instead of two because that's it's. Or, or just try, you know, to be really radical, just have one bite. Say, I'm just going to have one bite, but I'm going to really enjoy it. Okay. And you'll find that that's all you need because you get so much pleasure from that one bite, then everything else is, you know, doesn't really taste quite as good as that first bite anyway. One of my favorite chapters, it was Move More. 
You wrote something that made me laugh at the beginning of the chapter. You're like, the best things in life make you sweat. You know, yes. and, I, and I love that, right? So <laughs> could you share some of the brilliant research you guys had uh, on exercise and how it helps you live longer? Well, exercise makes everything better. I mean, whatever you study, whether it's your immune system, all the mechanisms that I write about in your book, you know, in my book, whether it's chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in your microbiome, changes in your gene expression. Uh, I mean, one study showed that just walking for half an hour a day after three months makes your brain bigger. You know, the yeah. hippocampus that controls your memory uh, actually can get bigger. That was thought impossible just a few years ago. Uh, that's kind of exercise. You know, there's aerobic exercise like walking, there's strength training like lifting weights, and there's stretching. The best is some common, kind of combination of those. But truly the best exercise is the one you like, because if you like it, you'll do it. You mentioned in the book, for every hour you spend running, you gain seven hours in your life expectancy, and yeah. up to three additional years of life, which, I mean, that's just insane, man. That's so cool. Yeah, but not only that, it's not just about living longer, it's about living better. Because, you know, who yeah. wants to live longer if you're not having fun? Yeah, it goes into exercise makes you happier, right? So it does make you happier. It works better than Prozac, you know, and the only side effects are good ones. Yeah, I remember you saying that. So how does it help depression? I know I know that exercise has been linked to helping with depression, right? Oh, yeah. It, like I say, it, studies have shown that exercise works as well as SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft and so on. Um, it works, you know, we don't fully understand it, but we know that it boosts the, your body's production of some of the neurotransmitters like serotonin. That's how Zoloft and Prozac work is they try to keep the levels of those, of those um, hormones higher in your brain because they um, stay in your system longer. You, you know, we don't need to go on the technical parts of that. And exercise does that as well. So, um, you know, the, sometimes I find the easiest time to exercise or meditate is when I first wake up in the morning. You yes. know, if I get up a little bit earlier, then I'm going to do it. Because, you know, once the day starts, there's so many distractions. You say, oh, I'll do that tomorrow, you know, and then tomorrow doesn't come, you know. And then, so if you just, and, and little goes a long way. And, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, I don't, I don't have time to exercise for an hour today. I'll say, well, do I have a minute? I'll say, well, yeah, I've got a minute. It's like, well, if I, don't, if I have to say I don't have a minute, then I have to admit my life is so out of balance. It's easier just to minute, you know, whether it's to meditate or to exercise. And even if you just do an intensity exercise for a minute or two, you know, do 20 push-ups or whatever. That only takes a minute or two. Uh, that, that, that will carry you through. And then, of course, it's usually just the inertia. Once you start to do it and you start to feel better, then you're probably going to want to do more anyway. I love your, your systems biology approach. When you, when you talk about chronic disease and how exercise can treat you know, different aspects of the body. And I kind of wish that in medical school, it was even more integrative like that, where we, we speak of disease the way that you speak of it, because it makes more sense. And I feel like patients know that sometimes more than medical professionals, you know, so that I do appreciate you using that type of language. Well, thank you. Well, you know, I, I did, I'm on the, uh, the nutrition committee of the American College of Cardiology. And uh, I uh, we did a report where we found that the average doctor gets four hours of medical of uh, nutrition training a year, and the average cardiologist gets zero training in their four years of fellowship. You know, so most of the patients often do more than, <laughs> more than their doctors because we get so little training in that. That was one of the reasons that I spent so many years trying to get uh, Medicare to cover my program was I figured if we change reimbursement, then we change not only medical practice but even medical education. Unfortunately, that's what's been happening.
That's incredible. Yeah, I remember reading that because you're actually out there making change. You talk about it not being sustainable unless it's reimbursable. And then I saw you made your program reimbursable. I was like, I'm so inspired by that because you kind of prove to us going into like I'm about to be a first year resident soon. Uh, that's that's proof that, you know, you can influence the system and you can implement things that that will be beneficial to the world. So I have to acknowledge you for that. That's so cool, man. Well, thank you. But on the other hand, it's really hard, you know. It's oh, actually, I bet. I mean, I, I um, you know, uh, we, we, through my nonprofit, Preventive Medicine Research Institute, we trained 53 hospitals around the country in the early 90s. We got bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, better adherence. But some of the sites closed down because we didn't have the reimbursement. And that was really the kind of the pitiful lesson was that if it's not reimbursable, it's not sustainable, no matter how much it helps people save people's lives. So, that was kind of a sobering realization. So wow. we started going insurance company by insurance company, and some of them, like Mutual of Omaha and others, uh, did cover it. But it's really hard to do that one at a time. I thought, well, if Medicare would pay for it, then most of the other insurance companies would follow their lead. And because I'd been working with Bill Clinton as one of his doctors, but also with Newt Gingrich and his family when uh, when he was Speaker of the House, and so we had the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House who really hated each other across both sides of the aisle. And then we brought 20 members of the Senate, 30 members of the House, heads of the ARP, all these organizations. It still took us 14 years, but Medicare did create a new benefit category called Intensive Cardiac Rehabilitation. If you go to our website at ornish.com and you've got heart disease, chances are you're eligible for Medicare to pay for our program for 72 hours of training instead of a 10-minute office visit in sites that we're training around the country. So we're really creating a new paradigm called lifestyle medicine, which is using lifestyle changes not only to help prevent disease, but to treat and often reverse it. And now that Medicare has been covering it, you know, Aetna's covering it in all 50 states. I'm on their medical advisory board. Uh, wow. Many of the other health, Blue Cross Blue Shield, the Anthem's covering it in all 14 states it covers, including New York and California and so on. So we're, as we change the, the reimbursement, it ultimately does change because we doctors get trained to do what we get paid to do. And, uh, and now we're, we're changing and giving people a full range of options. Thank you. Thank you. That's so incredible. I, I can't believe that you're even real. <laughs> <laughs> well, my persistence is my best and my worst quality. It can drive people crazy, but that's what it takes to get stuff done. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Lastly, talking about exercise, one of the, the most badass things that I read in that chapter was that exercise changes the brain and the sperm of male animals in ways that later affects the brains and thinking skills of their offspring, right? Through epigenetics. Now that, wow. Yeah, it is mind-blowing. Epigenetics. So when you change your lifestyle, it changes your genes. So moving on to stress less. This, uh, this had a lot of pearls in it. Stress is a big one. You know, when you're depressed, you said it yourself, your immune system depressed. And it's important to make that connection that, you know, when we're happy, your immune cells are happy. Well, just that, you know, that uh, one study showed that they found uh, that the number, the more phone calls and visits that, that someone had from a friend, uh, the less likely they were to get sick. And to prove the point, I don't know how they got this through the Human Studies Committee, a guy named Sheldon Cohen, dripped rhinovirus, cold viruses into people's nose, into volunteers' noses that were otherwise healthy, and, um, and found that 100% of them got infected with the virus, but not everybody got sick. And they found that the people who had the most social support, the most phone calls or visits from friends or so on, they were four times less likely to develop the signs and symptoms of a cold than those that weren't. 
even though they were all infected with a virus. So we have this idea that viruses causes us to get sick, and they're a necessary but not sufficient cause, because if your immune system is happy and it's healthy, then it can stave off the, the effects, even if your virus is in, actually makes it into your body, your body can, uh, your immune system can handle it and keep you from getting sick. In fact, one study uh, even more seriously found that uh, men and women who were HIV positive, who were depressed, were more than double the likelihood of developing AIDS and dying from it than those that weren't. That was the only difference. You know, another study done by David Spiegel at Stanford found that women with metastatic breast cancer, they randomly divided them into two groups. One group, they gave them a support group, and the other group, they didn't. Both groups got the other chemo, radiation, usual kind of treatments. And they found that they just did that for one year, once a week, for 90 minutes, very much like we do our support groups, just for one year. Five years later, David told me almost fell off his chair when he looked at his data. Those women who had the support group lived twice as long as those who didn't. And that was the only difference. Now, you know, a skeptic might say, oh, please, give me a break. Talking about my feelings is going to help me live longer if I've got breast cancer, please. But they do. You know, people used to kind of criticize my work and say, oh, this is so touchy-feely, you know, and Marin County. And I'd say, oh, no, no, I'm, you know, I trained in Boston and I grew up in Texas. And look at our PET scans and our angiograms and all this high-tech science. And then one day I said, you know what? It is touchy-feely. That's what makes it work so well. We are touchy-feely creatures. We're creatures of community. That's how we've survived as a species, by loving ourselves and loving other people, learning how to take care of each other and support each other. Unfortunately, so much in our society is moving towards, you know, literally and, bigger, and figuratively walling people out. And I think that anything that brings us together is really healing. And things that isolate us are really what often lead to, I mean, through patterns of behavior, but also through mechanisms we don't fully understand. So the stress comes not simply from what we do, but more important from how we react to what we do. Emotional intelligence. You know, that's, that's making a, a real wave right now. Uh, I feel like the world is more aware of that touchy feeliness and more accepting of it now more than ever. And I, I think it's really important to look at that um, and to see how much emotional intelligence really affects our physiology and how our body reacts to external stressors, right? That's simply incredible. You know, well, it affects our survival. You know, study after study, which I write about in the new book, that people are lonely and depressed are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from virtually all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And nothing in medicine has that big an impact. Yeah, amen to that. Wow. Then we get into what I thought was the best part of your book, Love More. And, you know, we're, yeah, we're, we're kind of on that topic right now. The need for authentic connection and community is primal, right? Yes. Uh, you say that, and it's fundamental to our health and well-being, just as much as air, water, and food, right? So right. for someone out there who's having trouble with that, what can you tell them about loving more? Well, just that, you know, if you love yourself so that you can have more love, we can't get what you don't have. So when you love yourself, you can... Love, love people more. When you have more compassion for yourself, you can have more compassion for others. My wife is the most amazing person I, I've ever met. We've been together now for uh, 22 years. We've been uh, married for 14 and you know, lovers for 15. We worked together for you know, several years before we fell in love. And um, instead of, there's a, um, a, a South Indian philosopher named Ramakrishna who 100 years ago said, you can dig a lot of shallow wells and never reach water. You can dig one deep one and reach the wellspring. And I realized that instead of having the same kind of shallow experience with different people, I could have these infinitely variable experiences 
with my true love with my wife Anne, because you can only be intimate to the degree that you can open your heart and be emotionally vulnerable. And you can only do that to the degree you feel safe, because if you open your heart and you're vulnerable, people can hurt you, and everyone's had that experience. But if you're with someone, you say, I'm committed with you totally for, in our case, we said in this lifetime and all lifetimes to come, just so there's no wiggle room at all, you know. And yeah, and I, I haven't always been that way in the past, but, you know, now I am. And in this relationship, I am. And it allows us to, it's like, it's like Chinese boxes or layers of an onion. It's like we keep opening up more and more and more and more. 21 years later or 15 years later of being lovers, 14 years, whatever it is, um, we keep having these most amazing, most erotic, most sensual, most pleasurable experiences that I've ever even imagined. I mean, I can't even imagine much less experience. I mean, I've never even read anything like this. It's just, you know, most of the time it's like, we're going into having a date without preconceptions, you know, with beginner's mind to say, instead of trying to recreate an experience we had already, however delightful or wonderful it might have been, just say, just be open to all, all degrees of freedom, all possibilities. And to me, you know, I worked my way through school as a photographer and I, I studied with Gary Winogrand, who was one of the great photographers of the 20th century. He put a, a picture up on the wall. I say, what do you see? And people say, oh, I see, I see this, what I say, how do you know someone has a gun like right outside the frame? How do you know this? Like challenging what yeah. your conceptions are. And great science, great art, great music, great lovemaking, great whatever, is to the degree you can approach that without preconceptions. So you're not, can, you're not imitating something, you're innovating. You're doing something that the world has never seen before. Your lovemaking is like something you've never, either one of you have ever experienced before. And by definition, if you're, if you want to experience something new, then you can't try to recreate something because then it's not new. And then all I can say is that sense of monogamy and commitment, it was, allows that sense of open heartedness. And the thing that I never knew before, and, and if people don't remember anything else we've talked about, the more intimate it is, the more erotic and pleasurable it is. Okay. Yeah. And so then what you gain truly is more than what you give up. So is, is being monogamous, is that the ball and chain? Well, it can be, but it can also be the most amazingly uh, liberating experience that I, I had no idea. And, and the more you love, the more pleasurable it becomes, and the more bonded you become, and the more healing it becomes, and the more interesting it becomes. And so it keeps it so fresh. Instead yeah. of giving like the seven-year itch or whatever, you know, these things like, having the same kind of experience, you know, out of a sense of duty or obligation. It just is, you know, but if you say, let's, let's just, you know, see where the, where the energy takes us, then it can be awesome. And so that, that's why. That sounds like true excellence right there. I really appreciate you sharing that. Dr. Dean Ornish, we're going to get to the last portion of our podcast here. This is where on our Instagram, we have our audience submit questions. So as major asks, can plant-based eating reverse cardiovascular disease? If so, what's the physiology behind that? Well, yeah, I've spent 40 years doing randomized trials showing for the first time that, in fact, our bodies can often begin to heal ourselves, especially from cardiovascular disease, even severe disease. And how quickly we found just in a few weeks the blood flow to the heart improves. After a year, even severely clogged coronary arteries become measurably less clogged, even more improvement after five years than after one year, a uh, significant reduction in, uh, in, in uh, cardiac events. Um, so yeah, the answer is in a word, yes, your body can often do that. And the physiology is it's on different levels. Your arteries begin to dilate. The arteries, uh, your little blood cells that can nibble at the lining of your arteries and, and help reduce the clogging. The little blood vessels that your body grows around blocked arteries get clogged up with fat and animal protein 
when you stop eating them, your those those built-in bypasses called collaterals can work yeah. effectively. Uh, so in in every way we can measure, and all these different mechanisms work better. And how I continually am impressed by how dynamic these mechanisms are, and how quickly you can get better, or for that matter, how quickly you can get worse, simply on the basis of what we eat and how we live. Learning about collateral circulation, I remember I was like, wait, the heart can build arteries around certain clogs. I remember learning that, I was just like, whoa, that's phenomenal. That almost means that our body knows that there's something wrong there and it's going to work its way around fixing it, which that's right. That's intelligence. Yeah, you know? your body has its own innate wisdom. But yeah. those, little, those bypasses, those collaterals are much smaller in diameter than the epicardial, the major uh, coronary uh -huh. arteries. And they get clogged up with sludge and fat and 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 junk and in your diet uh, so much easier. So when you stop eating that, it allows those to work more so much more effectively. So even before the arteries have time for the blockages to become less clogged, we still showed significant improvements in blood flow to the heart. And we found actually a a 400% improvement in blood flow to the heart in the group that made these changes compared to the group that didn't. Wow, that's amazing. Moving on to question number two. Preangster asks, I have night shifts almost every alternate day that is hampering my sleep cycle and my quality of life. Any tips on how I should overcome it? Well, try to get a different job because that's really bad for you. I mean, it really is. The circadian rhythms get disrupted, especially with every other day. So you never even, I mean, it would be better to be on night shifts all the time, but to do it every other day is like the worst of all worlds. Oof. Now, you can reset your, bi your biological clock by taking a milligram of melatonin, like if you're traveling you know, to another country, just take it a milligram or like an hour before bed, but you never really get a chance to reset your biological clock if you're doing it every other day. That would be the absolute worst thing you could do. Yeah, that's, that's tough, man. You know, I'm about to go into first year residency, so I know that. Oh, I know. Having those. <laughs> it's, it's ironic that we, we train people to be doctors by putting them in the, the most unhealthy circumstances. Yeah, they say it builds character. Well, we'll I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Pathology character. <laughs> that is funny. Uh, third question, JVD Sam asks, how can a med student handle a healthy lifestyle due to its own challenges, such as sitting all the time during studying and classes? Well, it's just another example of what we talked about a moment ago, how the train, way we train doctors is, uh, and I think it's part of the reason why as doctors we have, we tend to die 10 years sooner than the average person. We have the highest rates of divorce and drug addiction and suicide of any identifiable group. I think there's a realization we need to do something better. But you know, when you're sitting for long periods of time, just get up, you know. Uh, if you're gonna talk on the phone, get a portable phone so you can walk around when you're talking. Uh, make a point of, you know, set your alarm to ring every 20 or 30 minutes just to get up and walk around and, and then sit down again. Well, Dr. Dean Ornish, we have one more question for you. It's a question we ask every single one of our guests that are on the podcast. And that is, what is your definition of medspiration? Of medspiration? Yes, sir. <laughs> well, you know, inspiration really comes from to inspire, to breathe, to inhale, you know. Uh, when we inhale that not only the air, but all the energy and the light, you know. And so to me, anything that uh, can raise awareness uh, in ways that are inspiring can inspire other people to help use the experience of suffering as a doorway and as a catalyst for transforming their lives. That's what it was for me when I was so depressed in college. It's an, it's an opportunity that unfortunately as doctors, we're not really trained that much in, you know, to see someone coming in in pain. Because when someone's in hurting, 
there's an opportunity for real change. So you have their full attention. But we're just trained to numb the pain with drugs or to literally or figuratively bypass it. And it's good to, you don't want people to be in pain more than they need to be. But when, when there's a sacred moment there, it's really sacred in the sense of the most special, the most you know, pregnant with transformative opportunity. Wow. And, and it's why I've often heard people say things like, who go through our, our program, like having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me, or being diagnosed with, with uh, prostate cancer or whatever. And the first time I heard that, I said, what are you, nuts? And they'd say, no, that's what it took to get my attention to begin making these changes in my lifestyle that have transformed my life to such a degree that I might not have done otherwise. And so to the extent that we can help people use their suffering as a doorway for transformation, because we're all going to die, it's just a question of when. So to me, the more important question isn't just how long we live, but how well we live. And wow. so med's medspiration to me is to help people, you know, in our sacred role as healers and doctors and other healthcare professionals, to use that opportunity to help people say, okay, how did you get in the situation and what can you do to transform it? That's so inspiring, man. Thank you so much. That's that is med fire. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's med fire. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling meds fired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. For example, our newest sponsorship with Pygmonic is currently helping us fund our ongoing work at a small children's school in Cambodia. If you're currently a future healthcare professional and are studying tons, don't forget to check out Picmonic's learning tools for free. You can use the discount code MEDSPIRATION for 20% off any membership. Please visit Picmonic.com for more. We'll be sure to leave a link in the description below. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically and spiritually and as always you know what time it is it's time to get out there and do something med spiring